We're on chapter 15. We just started it last class. This chapter is called the Yoga of the Supreme Person or the Purushottam Yoga. And uh, Krishna starts this chapter by talking about a tree, this inverted tree, and he starts to really describe it in great detail, which, you know, like, you know, why is this guy talking about a tree suddenly? But of course, as we see more deeply, this is our nervous system, uh, not just the physical nervous system, but particularly the astral nervous system, the chakras, how the energy goes outward, and this is the flow Krishna is describing. You know, life force enters from the source, our awareness enters from the source, which is the upturned roots. This is our source of nourishment, that's where the roots are. So this tree is not with the roots below. We're not receiving our nourishment from this world, we're receiving our nourishment from God. And then that nourishment from the roots then goes outward into all the branches. And then those branches have leaves, which Krishna calls our sense objects. So little by little, our uh, tree of life becomes really full but in getting fuller and fuller because he called it the ashwatha tree which is the people tree he says also roots begin to grow downward like you see in a banyan tree or in a people tree where it's a kind of gentle roots begin to just go down and then they not only receive their nourishment from the original root system but then they also receive their nourishment from those secondary roots but our secondary roots, of course, are then going out into the world and then this is what binds us. So Krishna is giving us a very graphic representation so that we realize that this astral body of ours, which is mimicked or symbolically expressed also in our nervous system, is the key for us to return back. So it's not just key. we have to think about God and, you know, if somehow we kind of mentally just give ourselves to God, everything's going to work out. Krishna is saying, this is, there's an actual kind of process to it. There's an actual channel for us to be able to both receive from the divine and then return to the divine. Yogananda called this same tree. Of course, he used it more in the term of the astral spine. He called it the Shishumna the highway to self-realization and this is why the yogi's spine is really the most important thing. A bent spine, Yogananda said, is the enemy of self-realization. So that's a very, very powerful statement. The first thing about our tree, for this tree even to remain alive fully, is that it can't have a crooked trunk. It really has to have a nice, strong, open trunk so that first and foremost, we actually receive from the source. Let's have beautiful, abundant fruit. Let's have lush, wonderful trees, uh, leaves all around our tree. But having done that, the majority of us now realizing that with the most beautiful tree, with the most full tree, what's missing is fulfillment. We're still not happy. You know, I have every leaf known to man and I'm yet not quite satisfied and that's when the yogi realizes wait a minute my source is elsewhere what if i return back to that source and so he starts reversing that process withdrawing back away from those branches withdrawing back away from those roots that he sent down and then he starts going into the trunk and then from the trunk he returns back to the root to the sahasrara and that's what yogananda calls over here the sage he takes the axe of non-attachment and he 
cuts it at the root. Now, of course, we don't, as I said, don't need to cut our root system yet. But using non-attachment, which is the ability to detach, not non-attachment on the outward level as we talked about it, I don't want this, I don't want this, I don't want this. Our actual ability to withdraw the life force that binds us. It's not our thought or desire, it's not the thing itself that binds us. It's a physical or more accurately, it's an energetic knot that ties us on Tuesday. We did a very fun meditation uh, based on the Buddha Purnima theme. And we just kind of tuned into this visualization of cutting all these different strings and ropes that bind and attach us to the world. And you realize when you do that, there are a lot of those strings. And you know, even while you're trying to cut them open, a part of you is no, not this one. I don't want to get rid of this. So non-attachment becomes the great tool that we will use, especially, and this is what yoga, uh, Yogananda through Krishna mm -hmm. is focusing on, is that tool of non-attachment. Then this is where we left it. Krishna talks about the jiva, which is God himself, when he enters into this tree, when he enters into this particular form, the jiva takes on a body and takes with him the mind and the senses. This is verse 8, if you're looking for it. When he leaves the body, he takes them with him and departs. So Krishna is saying the jiva doesn't just come like solaya and oh, this is a new body. It's not like a robot, you know, the soul comes in and he's like, oh, what's this body about? Let me test this out. He comes in with a predefined personality that he's been bringing with him over and over and over and over again. And the personality here Krishna talks of as the mind the senses. The senses as in everything that we've received from this world. In this life, every perception I've created, every thought I've put out, every experience I've drawn from this world, I store that in this tree. This tree is like, you can say, the encyclopedia of our being. And it stores all that information in it. And then when we leave the body, we carry this tree with us. We carry the mind, we carry the senses. And the jiva then enters into the next body. And this is what Krishna says. This is where we start anew today. Verse 10. His departure from the body, like his abiding in it, is not perceived by the ignorant, who see only the effect of his presence, which is the body itself. It takes the eye of wisdom to perceive him as he is. And so a wise sage kind of sees that whole process. Now we think, oh no, this loved one or this person or me myself are so worried about ourselves. You know, one day we're going to die and we're going to have to leave this existence. But as far as the astral body is concerned, the soul is just taking pretty much absolutely everything that you had in this. Your entire consciousness travels with you body to body, life to life, as much as we would wish it didn't, it just does. I don't know if you remember, we'll come to this chapter soon, but if you read the autobiography of a yogi, there's this um, young student in Yogananda's school called Kashi. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Kashi dies very young. And before he's about to, you know, when Yogananda tells him that you're actually going to pass away, and when he, he asks his guru, you know, Promise me that you will find me in the next lifetime and you immediately having found me, set me back onto the spiritual path because I don't want to leave, you know, I don't want to waste any time. 
And so Yogananda reluctantly promises, but after Kashi passes away, Yogananda just would go around the city of Calcutta and he would just have his hands like this every now and then looking for Kashi's soul, for those same qualities that he possessed. That same tree is going to return back into the next body. And so he's looking for that tree. He's feeling for that tree. And then when he finds that soul, when he finds Kashi again, he knocks on the door, right? this person comes out and he's like, is your wife pregnant? <laughs> you wouldn't want somebody coming to your door and asking you, is your wife pregnant? Um, but of course, then Yogananda explains the whole situation and as it turns out, when the boy is born, he has the same features, he has the same personality, he has the same likes and dislikes that Kashi had and they rename him Kashi and very soon he comes onto the spiritual path. So that's what's happening to us as well. We're just continuing stage after stage, carrying this tree with us. That's why this tree is so important. When we think about ourselves as this tree, it becomes very important to see where are my roots? Where do I draw my nourishment from? What all leaves am I so attached to on this tree? Because I'm going to carry this tree with me wherever I go. Master said you know, that even we reincarnate with the same physical body that we had in the previous incarnation, isn't it? Yeah, in yeah. most cases that's true. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> if you really, really like your body, <laughs> you're good to go. <laughs> but if you want to change something, now is the time to do it. But you know, it's just a... I mean, everything's just an expression of our consciousness. It's not, it's not a random thing that, oh, you know, okay, now this time Shurjo has a little larger nose than he needs and, you know, so on and so forth. It's just, this is how, this is the natural expression. Just as if you take a blueprint and you were to give it an actual outward uh, form, it's just going to look like the blueprint does. Similarly, our tree is our blueprint. So it, we just look like what our blueprint is going to look like. And of course, so many things weigh in on that. Our desires, our hopes, our dreams. If you have a very, 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 very strong desire to be a certain way in your next lifetime, that desire will manifest it in that way. But it doesn't mean that it will satisfy you mm -hmm. at all. <laughs> because that tree remains that tree. The body in itself doesn't add particularly to that tree. Yogis who strive for liberation see his reality in themselves but those who even though striving i love this one those who even though striving have not purified their hearts and who lack discipline see him not now this is very applicable to us because we are those even though striving that's we're in that category we're not particularly in the first category where yogis who strive for liberation see his reality in themselves i just see god i just see that jiva in me so i'm not even attached because i'm this jiva yogis who are seeking true liberation aren't even attached to their own personalities they're not attached to their perspective of life they're not attached to their habits and likes and dislikes it's a very hard concept for us to tune into because we so much believe we are these likes and dislikes. I am these habits. These are mine. This is how I speak. This is how I sing. This is how I express myself. So on and so forth. But the yogi who's truly seeking liberation, he's not seeking liberation from Maya. He's seeking liberation from this tree. This tree is the Maya that we've created. So he's not kind of, he's like, I'm the Jiva. <laughs> you go do what you want to do. I'm the Jiva. But for us, even though we're striving for liberation, 
But if we have not purified our hearts, and if we lack discipline, we will not see Him in us. These two become, again, very, very important cornerstones for us. Purifying our hearts, how are we purifying our hearts? We're purifying our hearts through that detachment, that same very process. We talked about it in the last class. Every night, Swamiji would recommend, throw into the fire of your own devotion, of your own inner you know, being. Okay, not this. Every day, whatever experience has happened, whatever thought came to you, whatever you thought you really, really wanted or something that you pushed away, just keep throwing it into the fire so that every night you go to bed because that sleep is very much a reflection of how death's going to be like for us. So if we can go to sleep in the right way, chances are when we have to actually leave the body, this particular body, you know, that we'll also enter that transition very, very detached. In Patanjali's Ashtanga Yoga, uh, one of the yamas is non-attachment. And Patanjali says, when you've perfected non-attachment, the siddhi that accompanies the perfection of that yama is that you get to remember all your past lives. Now that's an interesting thing. If you've perfected non-attachment, you get to remember all your past lives. Why is that? Because once you've perfected non-attachment, that means you the greatest attachment we have is to ourselves. Once you've perfected that non-attachment, once you don't see yourself as this body, suddenly you're able to see yourself as everybody you ever were. And the entire encyclopedia that was held in this tree just becomes an open book to you. And you can just see cause and effect, cause and effect of all those lives that have led you to this point. And great detachment comes from that because you see, wow, I was so many different things. How can I be so, you know, obsessed with this one thing when I was a zillion other things? Who should I be obsessed with? Should I be that king? Should I be that princess? Should I be that pauper? Should I be that entrepreneur? Or should I be Shurjo? Because they're all the same. At one point or the other, I was so convinced that I was that thing, that person, that being, that personality. And so that detachment becomes very important to constantly work on purifying the heart, that chitta that binds us. If you remember, we went so many times over the man, buddhi, ahankar, chitta and Yogananda saying, it's the chitta that binds, not even ahankar. Ahankar still just says, I am, you know, slightly separate from everything else. But the chitta says, and therefore my happiness or my unhappiness is dependent on this outward world. And that's what we're purifying ourselves from. And that takes discipline. Because sometimes the spiritual path, and especially, you know, those of who read the Gita and they just satisfied ki Gita parlo, kyunke Krishna ne, you know, uski words hain, to bas pad pad ke hi hamara sab ho jayega. You need a lot of willpower and discipline. You can't just be like, oh, it's all for Krishna, so I'm just going to, you know, read his words and that'll be all. Have to maintain daily, 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 daily. And until that discipline doesn't become natural to us, until we don't embrace the tapasya that is part of this process, again, it'll become very hard for us to make that final detachment. The light of the sun which illuminates the world, of the moon and of fire, know that their radiance comes ultimately from me. Now here, of course, he's talking generally as well, the sun, which is the source of all life, the moon, which is, you know, tends to 
uh, regulate all water bodies on Earth, and then fire, which is an expression of you know the sun itself individualized on Earth. Krishna is kind of saying it all comes from me, but esoterically, if we come back to that tree, the sun, of course, is our spiritual eye, the moon is our ego, and the fire is our Manipur chakra. And so the fire is our prana, is our willpower, is our ability, our individualized will to move in the direction of God. Our ego is the eye that wants to move, and the sun is that light of spirit. And Krishna says all three are just aspects of mine and he'll continue more on what those aspects are i permeating the earth with my effulgence i support all beings so from the sun i support all beings because the sun is the source within us the sun is the source of our life through the watery moon i nourish all plants swamiji says that watery moon represents in us all the liquid in our body as well our body itself is made up of 70% of water, and that also includes our blood, our plasma, all bodily fluids, Yogananda, Swami Kriyananda said, and Yogananda, that it is regulated by the medulla oblongata here, by the moon in our body. I am the flame of life, again coming to the Manipur, in all living creatures. It is I alone who manifest as pran and apan. So these are the two major flows of prana inside us which are reflective by that fire energy and digest their food so that's another important part that the manipur does that fire is the ability for us to break our food down so again while our nourishment is coming from here the fire is further building on that nourishment from what we receive from this world so krishna is just trying to give you a sense that hey whatever you think you are doing here I am doing it all. So that's an, an awareness he wants to always keep with us. From me, seated in the hearts of all beings, come all memory and knowledge, and also the loss of these. I am the goal of knowledge in the Vedas. I am also their author and he who knows them. I love these words. <laughs> From me seated in the heart of all beings, here we have Krishna right here, the center of our being, come all memory and all knowledge. Now it's very important, memory and knowledge. And then he says, and also the loss of these. They're two interesting things. This also follows the same cyclical dual, dual reality of this world. First, we have to gain knowledge and memory, and then we have to lose knowledge and memory it's like why are we giving it in the first place but that's what we have to create knowledge and memory represent experience you have to gain experience experience lifetime after lifetime you have to keep gaining experience until our own experience brings us to the reality that this is not it and then we have to lose all that experience and this we see playing out just constantly in our lives. I mean, think about when you're a child, you know, you have to, you, everything that you learn as a child in order to eventually grow and move on, I have to lose the ability to crawl so I can gain the ability to walk. You know, I have to lose the ability to put everything in my mouth so I can put only those things that will truly nourish me. 
and that's so on and so forth. You can't, you know, I mean, it would be pretty awkward if you see a 21-year-old walking around in a diaper or crawling around in a diaper and, you know, it's like, it look, it's cute in a baby, but the baby has to lose that knowledge in order to gain the knowledge of adulthood. And it's the same over our lifetimes. And this is what Yogananda called, eventually the seeker gets to the state of anguishing monotony. And anguishing monotony comes from memory. When I realize I've done this, boy, I've played this game before. I've done this thing, I've done marriage before, I've had kids before, I've made a lot of money before, I've been extremely poor before, I've done it all. And that memory, and it's not like I remember like, but my tree remembers. And with so much memory comes finally the anguishing monotony. And you say, I can't do this anymore. There has to be more. And that's when you get to the point where you've had enough memory. It's like a critical mass of enough memory of enough knowledge. Therefore, enough experience that the world doesn't work. And then we go down into the process of loss of knowledge and memory, which means we start to lose interest in what this knowledge gives us, in what this memory gives us. And we start now seeking something entirely different. You see, the spiritual path, although several of us probably have been on the spiritual path for some years now, which is also memory. That's why many of us come to it young, because that memory still exists and we're like, I remember this, I remember Yogananda. These words seem familiar, even if I'm hearing them for the first time. These people suddenly seem familiar. You know, when I met Narayani for the first time, it was just instant, wasn't it? And you've got that with so many other people. It's just that memory, I know you. And it's the memory that allows us again and again to find each other, to continue these spiritual families or even just these earthly families. It's all that memory. But now we're starting something new. The beauty of the spiritual path, and that's why it's so exciting, is that everything on the spiritual path we've not done in the past. So this is all discovery. This is all completely new. And this requires loss of that. We have to keep losing that information to keep gaining this information. And that's what's hard. And that's why Krishna emphasizing detachment. He's not so much emphasizing, go for me and go for me. He's saying, Bhai, isko to chodo pehle. I mean, how are you going to even reach for me if you're so tied down? And that's why in this particular chapter, that's the focus here. Purifying ourselves through detachment. Two beings or purushas there are in this cosmos. The destructible and the indestructible. Creatures are the destructible. The kutastha chaitanya is the indestructible. This is a concept we've gone through before. This is om tat, sat. And the creatures, which is all this entire world, our body included, is om, which is the vibrational creation itself, which is also God. Tat, which is kutastha chaitanya, which is the individualized consciousness of the divine within us. So he's saying Om or the manifested world is destructible. Our body is going to become dust. This world eventually will become dust too, even though it seems really far away. But everything in this manifested world is destructible. But 
the singular reality within the manifested world, within me, within Narayani, within you, within all of us, within the camera, within this harmonium, is the Kuthastha Chaitanya. Kuthastha means that which is firm and unmoving. So that means the vibrationless consciousness. Om is vibration. The manifested world is vibration. It can only be created by duality, which means it has to move in both directions. All our atoms are constantly vibrating. The vibration of the atoms give the illusion of solidity. If the atom was still, we'd be able to just pass through it. But it's because it's constantly moving, it seems that, oh, well, it has some form between. But Kuthastha is vibrationless. So within the vibration, there is the vibration-less reality. The vibration-less cannot die, cannot be destroyed, nothing can happen to it. But the vibration itself can be destroyed, which essentially doesn't mean that it will disappear forever, but usually it just transforms from one form into the other. But it will not last. It is temporary. There exists, however, another. The Supreme Self, which is the Sat. Who permeating the three worlds, the causal, the astral, and the physical, is their sustainer. So we talked about Om, Tat, Sat. Om is manifested creation. Tat is the individualized divine reality, vibrationless reality within the manifested creation. And Sat is beyond manifested creation. That's where we would all like to be. That's the state of Samadhi. Kuthastha Chaitanya is when all our awareness gets and centered at the spiritual eye. But when all the awareness is here, we're still very much in this world. It is only when we enter into the Sahasrara that we enter into Sat. Everything below the spiritual eye is Om. Om, Tat, Sat. Now in order to get to Sat, you first have to entirely get to Tat. That is why Yogananda, Sri Yukteswar, in our lineage, we don't really talk about the Sahasrara much. Because it's not of this world. When you enter into the Sahasrara, creation ceases to exist. So for us, those of us who are in creation, we can't get to a creationless state until first we get to the Kuthastha. We get into the vibrationless state within vibration. And then from there, we can enter into the state of Sat. I, the Supreme Lord, am beyond the perishable Prakriti and am higher than the imperishable Kuthastha Chaitanya. So Krishna is saying Sat is higher than both Om and Tat. Therefore, in the three worlds and in the Vedas, I am proclaimed as Purushottama, the uttermost being, that supreme being. This is the yoga of Purushottama, the supreme being. And Krishna is finally now stating to, not finally, I think he said this in many different ways, but he's kind of reiterating to Arjuna, that's where you need to be. Not just in the Kuthastha either. You need to get to Sat. You need to get beyond creation. Whosoever freed from delusion thus knows me as the Supreme Spirit knows all. O descendant of Bharata, Arjuna, he worships me with his entire being. And the final verse for this chapter. Herewith, O sinless one, Arjuna, I have taught you this deepest of all wisdom. Comprehending it, one becomes a sage, having successfully fulfilled all his duties, even if he yet continues to perform 
dutiful actions. I like this line, it's important. Comprehending it, comprehending this reality Krishna has just given us, one becomes a sage having successfully fulfilled all his duties. What's Krishna referring here to? He's essentially saying, every duty we perform in this world has one ultimate goal, the comprehension of reality as it is. Everything we're doing. And what is that reality that we're trying to comprehend? Yogananda called that reality bliss. Sat, Chit, Ananda. What is the goal of everything we do in this world? Is it not joy? Is it not happiness? Everything from a murderer to a saint, from a child to an adult, old, young, happy, unhappy, rich, poor, everyone, every moment, every action, every thought is with the hope that it will take us to bliss. That will help us find a little bit more joy, a little bit more fulfillment, a little bit more happiness. And that's the reality Krishna wants us to comprehend. Not ki kya sat hai, kya tat hai, kaun sa om hai, kahan hai. That's the reality. Once you know and comprehend bliss, all your duties are over. Never again will you be compelled to perform action in this world. And that's an, you know, I mean, that's an amazing state to want to aspire towards. Trying to comprehend bliss. Not comprehend the scriptures, not comprehend what's Krishna trying to say, what's this tree and how many leaves does this tree have. I mean, it's so easy to get so confused. Often, in fact, scripture is meant to be confusing. It's meant to be confusing but it, because it's only for the discerning mind who can cut through everything and get to the absolute essence of what's being said. Because even through scripture, Krishna is only trying to see where our consciousness is. So he'll give us, he'll throw several seeds and depending on our consciousness, that seed will sprout in us where we, of our level of comprehension. That is why when Yogananda translated or redefined the Gita, he really cut through all that other stuff. Because there's lots in there. There's amazing stuff in here on even just an outward level. But he just kept wanting us to go inside and inside and inside because you can get very much lost in this process. You can forget that the whole point is bliss. That the point is not even Krishna, that the point is not, you know, knowing that you have to fight in this world and the point is not that are we a karma yogi or the point is not how many gunas are there and which guna am I. The point is bliss. And that's the most important thing for us to always realize. In every spiritual pursuit, am I seeking bliss? Or am I seeking knowledge? Am I seeking information? Am I seeking more Oh, now I want to know the sounds of the chakras, then I want to know the colors of the chakras. That doesn't give you bliss. The experience of the chakra will, but in order to experience the chakra, you don't need to know what it's going to look like. You just have to withdraw your life force into that tree, and you need to return that life force back to the roots of the tree. Comprehending this, Krishna says, all knowledge is known and no more duty remains. He's putting it as plainly as he possibly can. Don't get caught up, is what he's saying, in everything else. Comprehend just this. If your teacher in your school says, 
बेटा ये क्वेश्चन अगर कर लिया ना पढ़ लिया तो पूरा एग्जाम आपको आ जाएगा ऑल द स्टूडेंट्स विल से ओके मेरे को ये वाला क्वेश्चन करना है नो बट इज से ओके मैं पूरा बुक पढ़ता हूँ एंड लेट मी सी विल ऑल गो फॉर दैट क्वेश्चन एंड कृष्णा इज एसेंशियली जिंग जस्ट नो दिस वन थिंग नो द ट्रू रियालिटी ऑफ योर ओन बींग विच इज ब्लेस एंड इफ यू सीक दैट ब्लेस मोमेंट बाई मोमेंट इन एवरी थिंग दैट यू डू देर बी नथिंग लेफ्ट फॉर यू टू डू एवरी ड्यूटी विल बी नेचुरली फुलफिल्ड then you don't have to worry is this my karma is this my dharma am i doing this right oh no god should i take left should i go right where's bliss where's bliss where's bliss the true bliss and then everything is revealed naturally to us very very nice wonderful i was thinking about that paragraph that stanza that says about purifying the heart mm. and i would like for us to work on that aspect this week there are many techniques out there uh, on how to purify and work with your heart but i would like to use the one technique that my guru recommends as highly efficient to really purify the heart and he recommends chanting mm. as one of the most powerful tools to do that and i would like for us to experiment with that in a way that we have not done before and i was thinking let's choose a chant that we want to use to purify our heart throughout this week for all of us disciples of yogananda i am choose a chant of yogananda's you know songs uh, if you are not a disciple of yogananda uh, choose that chant that really opens your heart and inspires you and uplifts you uh, you decide but for many of us yogananda's disciples i would say choose a chant that perhaps in fact if you don't even know yet which chant meditate on it ask yogananda which chant do you want me to practice to use this week to purify my heart meditate a little bit tonight and ask him and see what chant comes to you so whatever chant comes or if nothing comes just whatever chant really inspires you choose that and throughout this week the challenge is going to be this of course we are going to wake up in the morning <laughs> singing repeating affirming that chant and of course we are going to go to bed singing repeating feeling that heart within us that's you know a given morning and evening but throughout the day we are going to set our alarm and every 2 hours the alarm is going to ring and the notification the universe is going to remind us the memory of the heart where is our energy and that chant will help us to redirect the energy of the heart and remind ourselves that whatever we are doing needs to be infused with the energy of the heart 
that action, what we are doing, needs to be purified, refined. And chanting will help to do that. So choose a chant, set your alarm. In fact, your alarm can be that chant itself. So every two hours when the alarm rings, the chant itself will come up and you will know exactly, you know, like, like just alignment with your own energy. And you know, every two hours, whatever we are doing, whatever we are doing, we'll just chant for five minutes. So every two hours, five minutes, whatever we are doing, chanting, chanting, chanting. And hopefully with each passing chant, each passing day, we will refine and we will deepen our attunement with that chant and we will become one with that chant and what we will emanate will be the consciousness of that chant. And I think it's important for us to meditate a little bit uh, to choose the right chant that we feel will help us according to our own nature to purify our heart. If you are a person that have a tendency, you know, to your energy drop, choose a chant that have, you know, has the words of joy and something very, very uplifting. If you are a person that, you know, are usually restless, choose a chant that will help you to develop that calmness, that stillness. I mean, um, introspect a little bit, meditate, ask Yogananda, ask God, ask inwardly your own guru, uh, whoever he might be, and see what chant intuitively comes to you and purify your heart. And hopefully by the end of this week, uh, we'll see the results. We'll see that our heart is softer, is more open, is calmer, is more I don't know, loving. And the energy of the heart has a tendency now after seven days of chanting, you know, to, to that energy constantly continues to go upward. So use the power of the chant this week to purify your heart. And hopefully with every two hours you will see that not only your heart but your energy your consciousness will shift and your vibration as well and those people that are serving with you living with you will benefit tremendously for that process of self-purification that we will be going through so yes that's